Are you ready to begin your journey out of the realm of just theories and into a world of excitement and experience that only comes with braving the unknown? Join us as we speak to entrepreneurs who have faced the challenges of successfully creating businesses at home as well as abroad. Whether it's arts, services, or tech, from Shanghai to Tokyo, Bangkok to Mumbai, we'll help you find your inspiration and turn it into action. Get ready for Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now welcome your host, Neville J. McKenzie. Today's conversation is with Graham Brown, the founder of Asia Tech Podcast. In this conversation, Graham tells us about his journey from an AI graduate in the 90s when there was no demand, becoming an entrepreneur in several industries, going into semi-retirement to travel the world, before being lured back to the world of entrepreneurship in Singapore. Every, if you were into music, they're all made by Japanese companies and you had a, a stereo at home, which was Japanese and you watched it on a Japanese TV. And, it, you know, we learned about Japanese cars and like samurai and ninja. And wow, this world just blew me away. And I wanted to be part of that. And I looked at where I grew up and just wanted to get out. The failures that often accompany entrepreneurs before the overnight success. You know, we went from people paying like ten to $15,000 to speak, to be on a conference panel, to sponsor it, to be on that, to like the next week, nothing. Crickets. So that completely went belly up. So yeah, it was a wild ride. That was the second business. This is the first time that Graham has appeared as a guest and the conversation was recorded in the studio of Asia Tech Podcast, where I also appear as a guest host. So now, without further delay, let's begin. Hi, I'm Neville J. McKenzie, and this is the Asia Tech Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. The guest is none other than Graham Brown. Yeah. So Graham, can you just introduce yourself? Well, thanks, Neville. Um, first time I sat on the other side of the table. My name is Graham Brown. I am the host of Asia Tech Podcast, not the Asia Tech Podcast, for the record. So I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it's a different one. And that's who I am. So that's my introduction. So how did you get into podcasting? Um, it's been a while. I did my first, I think I did like a radio style interview. I think it was podcasting going back like 2002, 2003 by Skype. First ever we're in the old days when you stuck like a box into the phone, you know, those days when if you did like a telephone interview, you had to run like a separate line at the phone, like a microphone jack. No, I don't know. Yeah. You know, you're too young. Yeah. So I did that. And the first ever guy I interviewed, cause I was in telecoms at the time was the guy who later went on to start angry birds at the time he was working for Hewlett Packard. So that was my first ever interview, but I really enjoyed interviewing people and off and on I'd started and stopped podcasts in different areas. You know, I got into property investment, um, telecoms, marketing and um, yeah, so I've always had it there in the background but I've never made it into a business and that was, you know, the the latest stage of my journey which is Asia Tech Podcast. So you mentioned telecom, what else did you mention? Marketing. Marketing. And property property yeah they're all very different yeah so why did you switch from one thing to the other um yeah i mean i think it only makes sense in steve Jobs style when you're looking back and joining the dots like there was a master plan yeah 
and you're always trying to, I mean, we always do these things and we're like, how does this all fit together? I just want to do one thing. I want to be that guy who just bakes cakes and talks about cakes and writes books about cakes, but life is never, never that simple, is it? Um, and I always thought like, why am I in telecoms and property real estate? And I, th I mean, when I thought about it is I asked somebody at the time, like, what are the two things that you leave the house with? Um, and they said, uh, my house keys and my mobile phone. Okay. Well, that makes sense to me. That made sense to me because they were like essentials, mobile phone, real estate. But, you know, even back in the day, people said, oh, uh, you know, I left with my wallet. Um, you don't even need that these days. So you yeah. don't need in something, you've got a China, you don't need a wallet or a credit card. So the only things that people really need are the house keys and a phone. And not even a car keys anymore, right? Yeah. Th those are gone. So these are like essential, essentials of what we need in a day-to-day -day life. So I think they're great to build a business around and they touch everybody's lives. So, you know, we're not talking about blockchain where it's very specific and technical and engineering focused. We're talking about people. Because if you talk about mobile phones, everybody you know has got a mobile phone pretty much. Yeah and of a certain age, and it touches everybody's lives. So once you remove the technology, what's left is just the the people. The commonality is that people part, which is really what I'm passionate about. People. So, yeah, people. So I've, I would gravitate towards businesses which were about people rather than blockchain or you know something technical. And that, that's essentially what those businesses were at the end of the day. So you, where, where were you... Where was your um, business career? Where did it start? What country? UK. UK. So you you had property in UK, telecom business in UK. Then what did you do? Uh, not in order. I came. I was in Japan in the nineties. Came back from Japan. Absolutely certain I was going to start my own business. Didn't know how the hell to start. I had no experience whatsoever. Nobody I knew in my network was an entrepreneur. None of my family, um, because the only kind of entrepreneurs we knew back then when I was starting out were self-employed people, like plumbers, which is not really like startup people, or educated people like, you know, um, teachers. That was it. That was sort of very sort of, you know, I suppose it's working class professionals in a way or lower middle class, maybe, if you class it like that. So there was no entrepreneurs. There was nobody who I could turn to, like, uncle, whatever, who'd built a business and said, Graham, this is what you need to do. But I absolutely knew I was going to do this and wanted to do it, so I didn't know what to do. I remember opening the newspaper, seeing an ad in the newspaper saying, you can own your own business and earn, I think, like, £35,000 a year. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to do this. And it was just like a phone number. It didn't say what it was, but I was so hungry that I just phoned it up and they said, yep, you can start your own business. Come in to our offices at this time for a presentation. <laughs> but usually when, when I see those adverts, I immediately dismiss them. Why did you? I was naive. So what was the business? So it was a, a financial um, company. Uh, financial services sales company. It was Boiler Room, if you've ever seen the movie, you know, like 120 calls a day. And you went in there, but I loved it. 
this is amazing. Like I'm selling and I'm making money. I didn't know how to sell. They taught me how to sell. I learned so much about financial products and services. Um, and really it wasn't my own business. I was just self-employed for the tax reasons. So yeah. they didn't have to play, you know, like employer contributions. Uh, but I learned so much and I'm, it really made me, even though I had to get out, it was really tough environment. And I remember they said, you know, at the interview, I was asking about what it was like to be self-employed. They said, oh, it's amazing. It's like, uh, you can come in at any time you want in the morning, as long as it's before eight o'clock. <laughs> so what was the most, what were the three most important lessons that you learned working there? Um, that it's all about sales. At the end of the day, everything is sales. So I learned all about that. And I learned about, for the first time, somebody had showed me that I could improve my life. And I know it sounds like really trite, but I learned that because my boss, one day he just sat around and said, uh, oh yeah, have you ever read this book? And I said, what is it? And he goes, Tony Robbins. I'm like, no, never heard of him. No, nobody I knew around me yeah. consumed that kind of crap. But it's like self-help. Like, they didn't touch that stuff. But I opened it and I thought, oh, wow, this guy's like saying really interesting stuff. So I learned all about that. I learned that you could actually improve your life and become better. So and why, I, why weren't the people around you reading that kind of stuff? I don't know. It just wasn't done. They were like, you know, teachers and engineers. And, and when you told them you were re reading this kind of stuff, what was their reaction to it? That I was somehow getting into a cult. A cult? Yeah, because yeah. like, when I first started reading it, it was like, you know, this is amazing. You can do this, and you can change your mindset, and you can improve your life, and you can be you know, all these da 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 da, all these kind of things. And uh, they were like, Ooh. like did you find that bullshit. disheartening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was like completely fired up about this, and and then how did you overcome that disheartenment? The... Well, it's like a big dissonance, isn't it? Like yeah. you're, this is what you want to do. Everybody else you ever knew is like, not against it, but that sort of silence is probably as bad, you know, where they don't, you know, like you tell them something amazing and they're just like, oh, um, so-and-so is getting married. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whatever you say, it's like, uh, did you, you know, uh, how are West Ham getting on? It's like they, they try and deflect it back to normal, boring conversation. Or maybe because, I don't know, they don't know how to deal with it feel a bit threatened by it and especially like the manner in which I was approaching it was quite ballsy and like bravado and big and so I think it probably annoyed a lot of people especially people that are you know I grew up with people I went to college with you know they just thought I was an idiot so now when you meet people like those because they're still around yeah how do you react to them talk about West Ham or yeah <laughs> well, yeah you, you no, tell because you, no. you you know you come across as quite a a driven person. Yeah. So you meet somebody that um, you're saying, look, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. Yeah. And then they sort of give you that sort of passive, well, it's not really me reaction. <laughs> what do you do? Um, well, if they do that to me. Yeah. Now. Then I just walk away. Yeah. I don't need them. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you're in Japan. Why did yeah. you go to Japan? Because it's not something people normally do in the nineties. Well, in the nineties they did. Oh, well, if you were of a certain type of person, 
that wanted to go and see the world and yeah. was ambitious and curious, uh, you would have gone to Japan because China wasn't a thing. Um, there were no other options, really. It was the big market. And if you sort of grew up in the 80s, as I did, Japan was like the thing. And put it into context, you know, there's all those stories about the bubble economy in Japan. It was just like money, just like money upon money upon money. And you look at the data of Japan. I mean, I only know this now, but this is what I grew up with. And I grew up with the stories. But there were times when the Japanese economy was growing. Like, and you know, an economy these days, 3% growth a year is big. Four or five, you're Singapore, right? China, six or seven. But there were years when Japan was growing like 30, 40, 50% a year. I mean, it's phenomenal, right? And then into the 80s, it was growing like in double digits, like 12, 15%. It was just massive. It was growing. It was taking over the world. You know, I grew up with Sony and Panasonic and TDK. And, you know, every, if you were into music, they were all made by Japanese companies. And you had a, a stereo at home, which was Japanese. And you watched it on a Japanese TV. And, it, you know, we learned about Japanese cars and like samurai and ninja. And wow. This world just blew me away. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I looked at where I grew up and just wanted to get out. And so you went to Japan. So what did you do in Japan? Um, well, it wasn't part of the plan. I graduated with AI, artificial yeah. intelligence degree. And um, because I believed it was the future, but I was like 20 years too early. Like nobody knew what the hell artificial intelligence was in 1994, five. So when I graduated, I went to the careers office and, they sat me down with like the, the ring bound folders and he just looked at me like, what have I just wasted my three years on? And he just said, why didn't you go and teach in Japan? Oh. You know, whereas now, I mean, I'd be like, you know, Google, Uber, Facebook, line up and give me a big fat salary. But back then it was very different. So they said, go and teach in J English in Japan. That was the only job that I could do. For an AI graduate, the only yeah, job was to only because I could speak English by virtue of the fact I was English, right? I had no other sellable skills. And just so happened, Japan was, at that time, it just, the bubble had burst, but it was still a big economy and it was still, had yet to reconcile the fact that it wasn't a world leader and it was going downhill, but they didn't realize it then. So in the mid nineties, they were still hiring a shit ton of um, English teachers. So, you know, I, I, one of, I knew somebody that went there and said, go, it's life changing. And I was like, that's all I needed you to hear. I'm out of here. So how long do you spend? I was, uh, two years in Japan that time. And then after two years in Japan teaching? Yeah, I was then... teaching two years in Japan and then I came back to the UK. I left, I left Japan in like the late nineties. And then at that time, the UK economy was really picking up. And uh, I started hearing stories. I felt like missing out a little bit. I heard stories about how London, that people were walking out of jobs. I mean, so walking out of university and getting like really good jobs in the city. That was when the city became a thing again, right? I'm like, I want to get back into that. So I flew back straight out of Japan. And then uh, I thought, how do I get a job in the city? I didn't know anybody, didn't know anything about stock trading. But I went up to all these interviews and people were like, uh, what do you know? I'm like, mm, teaching English. <laughs> Didn't, and no success whatsoever. And then that job ad spoke to me and that's how it all sort of happened. So after, after the job, the, the finance, yeah. what did you do then? 
I went and started my own business. Well, I, I wanted to start a business because this was like, you know, and that's what I was trying to get to, start my business. And the job in the city selling finance was sort of a step. Um, but I didn't know what to do. 1997, 98, people started buying computers and PCs. Like, you know, that was the first time you'd buy a PC in a, a business, maybe, you know, invest in a Windows PC because Windows 97 obviously was out. And then, uh, so me and my best mate said, let's start a business together. Let's build computers, build computers yeah. and sell them. Right. And that's what we did. So we started that. Um, and then our, our marketing strategy, and I laugh now because obviously now it's all very technical and MVP and sales funnels, but our marketing strategy is right. Here's the phone book. You start on A, I'll start on M. Seriously, that would be the yellow pages. Right? Yeah. All right. Okay, let's go. <laughs> That'll be it. And we would pick up the phone. And I'd learned that kind of training in um, City Financial, the company I work for. You know, building lists and pitching. I learned all that. So I'd pick up the phone. Hello, Mr. McKenzie. Um, do you have a computer? Are you interested in a computer? Blah, blah, blah. So we just go. I mean, it was soul destroying. And we'd make hundreds of calls and get like one or two meetings and maybe sell a computer. But when we actually sold a computer, it was like, yeah, high fives, we've done it. But then we had to build it. Oh, so you, had, you, you didn't have a... No. So you were... <laughs> selling them and selling, building them. Okay, right. We had to like, we, you know, we went to the... Um, there were lots of kind of like these computer markets that happened like Tottenham yeah. Court Road area where you'd go and you'd kind of get all the bits. And like the computer world there was very geeky. Yeah. So you'd go and you'd have to be like looking for a fan and looking for a power pack and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, it's an amazing experience. I learned how to do all that from nothing. Yeah. And you couldn't go online and Google this stuff really. That was impossible back then. You had to buy like a, a, a dummies, you know, those books, something for dummies. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, computers for dummies. Or, it really was yeah. computers for dummies. Word for dummies. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. So that with the CD in it. So that's how we started. And then, we, I mean, we went into it for about a year, um, made a little bit of money, but then he left because he just couldn't handle it anymore. He and then you run your own. Yeah, he, had a, he went to a job. Yeah. And I was, I was like, well, what do I do? I can't go back. I can't. No, I'm, I'm in now because when I left, I was like, all my friends, hey, I'm starting a business. And it wasn't a startup back then. I had no money. Started a business and by that point I was in debt. Um, you know, I didn't have any support. No, you couldn't go and raise money from a bank or an investor back then. So he just left me, he just walked out and then uh, I was left with the debt. And I didn't realize, ah, don't worry, you're a limited company. Don't worry, you can, you can write the debt off. And then all the debtors started chasing me and uh, threatening to take me to court. And, uh, well, eventually, it, I had to settle all the debts. I think, I'm not sure legally whether or not I had to, because they technically said we were insolvent, which means that you actually, you can't trade whilst you're insolvent, which means you, you, know, you can't meet your, your, your liabilities. So you shouldn't be buying more computer stuff, right? Which I was. <laughs> so I had to pay all that stuff back, and you know, I had to have these kind of credit agreements with the, the, uh, the debtors the creditors, if you like, um, which I had to pay off over a period of, I don't know, up to 10 years. But I paid everything off. 
So that was my first ever business, which was a complete fucking disaster. And what came next? Another business. In? In, uh, well, I went from, so what, what happened was, is that whilst I was doing that, um, there was sort of these meetups being organized. People were interested in internet, internet back in 97, 98 you know, when internet was AOL CDs, yeah. right? But there were people who were starting to realize actually there was kind of business here and let, let's understand it. So people started organizing these meetups. I started organizing those, um, you know, just because I knew a lot of people like from the, the computer parts world or, you know, companies who are buying this stuff. And you meet, you met a lot of people in those days, you know, just randomly, like, you know, you could get onto the chat, like ICQ. Yeah. Do you remember ICQ? Yeah. yeah. Like I'd meet people randomly on ICQ, like some guy, and he would be, hey, how's it going? Yeah, great. What do you do? Oh, I'm doing this stuff in Sweden. Yeah, it's cool. I'm in London next week. Do you want to meet for a beer? Yeah, all right, let's do that. And you'd meet them. And you know, like to think that that would happen today is just crazy. Just be, you met, because you were interested in the internet, <laughs> you could meet people. So I started organizing that and gathering it together and, um, then people said, you know, at the time, about 2000, a lot of people started getting interested in mobile and, you know, WAP at the time, wireless application protocol. So in the old days when it was all black and white. Those uh, from Japan? Is that the, no, the, the, um, it's sort of like internet on Your the mobile, mobile phone. Yeah. Yeah. The early, early days when yeah. it was 9.6K yeah. speed. Because I'd seen it in Japan and I realized this is going to happen here. And I started realizing, oh, I've seen this already in Japan. It's happening here now. People are interested in it. I started organizing these sort of meetups in pubs. People then started offering sponsorship for it. And this thing started growing. And then so what happened was, is we started organizing these events. You know, we went from organizing events in pub and it just gathered this steam. People started joining my team. So I had at one point like six or seven people in the company in no sort of st vague structure, it's a very vague structure, like, you know, who, who owned what, we didn't know. But we were just doing these events and making money. And suddenly we were organizing events. I was going to America and I was speaking at conferences about WAP, right, you know, in a year. Because actually our company had a similar name to another company out there, which was like, I won't go into the details because they might be listening. But there was another company out there that had a very similar name to us about WAP, they were like, you know, WAP something and we were WAP something else. Just bear with me. And uh, so people started contacting. It just shows you how cottage industry it was, is that people started contacting us, phoning up and said, um, are you from the WAP? Mm? And he said, yeah, that's us. Okay, um, we've, got the, uh, we've got CNBC on the line or we want you to speak at this conference. I was like, blimey. But we were doing these events, but we weren't those guys. So that created a lot of opportunity for us. The, the, that business grew very well. I mean, we did about two years out of that, made quite a bit of money at sponsorship and doing events. And then 2001, 2002, the whole dot-com thing blew up. And when, you know, we went from people paying like ten dollars to $15,000 to speak, to be on a conference panel, to sponsor it, to be on that, to like the next week, nothing crickets so that completely went belly up so yeah it was a wild ride that was the second business and then the third the third business i'll keep it short but yeah. out of all of that um 
the third business was most successful and it lasted 12 years. And that was what I was really passionate about, telecoms, people, Japan. It was about young people and mobile phones. You know, during all this time we were doing this, this WAP stuff, all these sort of stories about young people and mobile phones were coming out. And obviously my experience in Japan was huge in that because they were like the first in the world, all these like young high school girls using mobile phones. So, you know, I remember going to Nokia in like 2001, 2002 and knocking on the doors and saying, hey, I'm sort of like writing some research about young people and mobile phones. And Nokia back then said, no, we don't do kids. And it's amazing, like nobody at that time thought about young people and mobile phones. This was like pre-SMS and pre all that taking off. But uh, yeah, I, th I thought this is the future. Young people, kids, mobile phones. Everybody's going, no, no, no. It's, uh, you know, middle-aged boring executives. Middle-aged execs like me now. Yeah. Not 13-year-olds who are the future. I said, no, 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 this is what it is. It's like messaging and it's sharing and all this stuff. So um, we created a, a research company. It was really successful. Like, and uh, Why was it successful? Nobody else was doing it. That's it. That was, no one else was doing it. And, so. and, yeah, and did anyone follow you up on that? Did, did the competition start? Yeah, yeah, people tried to copy it. But we were always writing about young people first and mobile second which uh, it was always analysts were always coming from the technology angle so yeah and i was passionate about people you know from my background about you know psychology and artificial intelligence is all about people and modeling behavior and so on and understanding behavior i was fascinated about that and you know some of our interestingly some of our first clients were people like disney and mtv not the mobile companies because they got it yeah they were like oh you know, young people are using mobile phones now. We need to understand that. So MTV were probably one of my best clients throughout the whole, you know, 10, 12 years. So, but that was amazing. Then I got to work with all these companies at MTV and Disney and, um, you know, everybody on the, the, the base layer side, like the Intels, all the way up to, you know, we did a big project for the European Union about young people and mobile phones. I went to um, uh, the United Nations in New York. How was that? Yeah, it was amazing. I went to like the United Nations, that bloody great building yeah. that you see on the TV. I went there and I presented there to the UN, not like all the delegates, yeah, yeah. but I presented to the UN about young people and mobile phones and they, they published a report. There's a United Nations report. It's called, um, I forget the name, but it's something like um, children and technology, something like that, like global. And um, I'm one of the authors. I'm contributing authors to it. So, you know, you've, I've gone from being a complete imposter, not knowing anything, to being the only guy in the world who knew about this subject. You know, I wrote a book about it. I got called onto TV, speaking, speaking gigs. You know, brands were like calling me up. Can you speak at our company powwow? You know, whether they were like a, a drinks brand or a, whoever. Because there was nobody else who, I think it goes to the point, you know, find that niche and completely own it. And whatever it is, I mean, you know, you, you would never have thought that was a big market, but whatever it is, you can make a big market out of it. If you're not world number one in that. So after the um, United Nations gig, <laughs> what then? 
I don't know what happened then. I think the I just got I think you know it's a successful business, made good money out of it. Um, somebody told me along the way that you know you don't make money out of businesses, and I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm in this to sell my business for X million. And, he's, and they told me, look, that's what you think, but it doesn't work like that. It can work like that, but in most cases it doesn't. So what I advise you to do is make as much money as possible out of your business, cash flow, rather than building a business to sell it, which is what I was trying to do. Create a lot of cash, take the cash out of the business and stick it into assets, buy real estate. And it made complete sense because, you know, you know, make money whilst you sleep and all that stuff. And um, that was the best advice I was ever given because they got to a point where, you know, the the real estate was making more money than my day job. And then I started thinking, well, why am I doing my day job? I'm getting bored of this now. I needed a new challenge. And so you moved your, your you created assets in the real estate. Yeah. Um, that's running itself more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you got bored. I think everything and has a life what? cycle. Don't you think? Don't you yeah. think? Like, yeah. You, you know. You sold the business. You. I sold it to my, the, the partner I was working with. Yeah. And then, then what happened? Then, um, so I sat, I mean, this is 2012 with my wife and my son was six at the time. So when did, when did they appear? At what stage? My wife and son. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just picked them up along the way. They just. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, was it before? My the... wife's Japanese, so I met her in Japan. She came back with me. In Japan, yeah? Yeah. And how, how did she feel about, you know, you giving up your day job and what was the conversation there? Well, I, this is a really interesting question, Neville, because I think that is really important that you've got to, if you're going to do that, you've got to have a partner who's on board. If they don't get it, it's going to be really tough. And she got it, which is quite rare for Japanese because they're quite sort of career focused. But her dad is a really, he's passed away now, but he's a, was a really interesting character, a lovely man. He was like, um, he owned an antique books shop in Japan. He's selling the old scrolls, yeah. you know, like really valuable scrolls. Some of, some of them are actually like national treasures, which you can't take out the country, even though they own them, right? And he used to, during the bubble period of the 80s, he would um, fly to, from Japan to New York Christie's and sell his scrolls. Even the ones that you couldn't take out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them, obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, some of them were national treasures. Yeah, but there was, yeah. Because the demand for, for that sort of stuff in the 80s was huge. Yeah. And obviously the Japanese were buying as well. So he was doing really well. So he was, he was living this really good life, you know, selling these scrolls, working for himself. So, you know, I, I think people who get entrepreneurship usually grow up around entrepreneurs or yeah. seen something. It makes it a lot easier to understand. You yeah. know, if they, they grow up around professionals, and like doctors and lawyers and MBAs. And it's harder to understand entrepreneurship and it's harder to then talk about that with a wife or a husband, right? So, yeah, she was on board from the start. She supported me, and um, which is great because, you know, it's never a straight line. It yeah. walks up and down. So during those down periods if she was against the idea it could have easily been like okay you've had your fun yeah now it's time to get back in and earn a salary and those conversations come up many many times yeah. right so yeah to her credit she stuck by me 
Okay, so you've you, you've finished um, with the telecoms company. Yeah, you've got your assets. Then what happened? Then we said, "Fuck it, like let's do something with our lives." And um, 2012 uh, didn't need to start another business because you know I had a bit of like "fuck you" money, so yeah. to speak, and then. Uh, um, didn't want to start another business because I was like had enough of all that, and my son was sick, so it was perfect timing. So, like he, you know, he just is it about to start school? Yeah, he had started school. Yeah, so he had. He was already like because in the UK he would have been a year in. Yeah, and he'd already done nursery, so he's done two yeah. years, but not old enough such that he's got mates who you know like they, they hang around with all the time. That hasn't started yet, so he thought, well, let's go and travel the world. So actually the plan originally was to move to New Zealand because that was the other side of the world. Yeah. So uh, we did that and then we got into New Zealand and thought, actually, let's keep going. <laughs> so we did. And then we went like New Zealand. I think that it actually went like three months in New Zealand and then we went to Fiji, Hawaii, California, which was amazing. I loved California. And then to Florida. And then we were done. We had to move on because we'd done our 60 days in the US. So you've got to get out. So we flew to um, Cyprus. It's a bit random. We thought, could we live here? We'd been there before. We liked it. But when we went back to look as if we were going to live there, it was very different. And then we didn't like that. So randomly, we flew back to London and it was snowing. I remember that at Gatwick. So like, we're not coming back here. Landed next day, flew out again. I didn't even tell like my mom that we were back in the UK because if she knew, she was like, oh, why don't you come down and visit me and stuff like that? And I'm like, we're, we're getting out of here. Like we're going from Cyprus to the Canary Islands. Landed in Fuerteventura, the Canary Islands. And then uh, we looked at Canary Islands. We kind of liked it. And then just over the water from Fuerteventura, you can see Lanzarote. And we thought, let's just go and have a look. Like we've traveled everywhere. We've tried everything. You know, we haven't found anywhere to live. Let's just go and look at Lanzarote. We'll take a ferry across. We took a day trip across. And I remember I took a day trip across and like, it was just perfect that day. It was like blue skies and, you know, white houses and blue sea. And, you know, we were just kind of hanging out in cafes. And, and volcanic like, earth. Volcanic earth. Yeah, rocks everywhere. It was just, that was a bit exotic. <laughs> <laughs> palm tree, well, yeah. a palm tree, not palm tree. And then uh, I remember seeing a, a group of cyclists go past. And then it just like, okay, this is where I got to be. Because, you know, I'd done half Ironman before that. I knew there was an Ironman in Lanzarote. And I thought, oh, it all makes sense now. This is why I came here. And I turned around to my wife and said, can we stay here? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I love it. It's Spanish. It speaks Spanish in Lanzarote, but it's you know, quite familiar. And then, so we lived there. You learned Spanish? Yeah. Your yeah. wife learned Spanish? Yeah, she did. Yeah. And my son went to Spanish school because everyone's going, like, put me into international school. I'm like, no, no, no. We send him to Spanish school. So my wife didn't speak any Spanish when she arrived. And obviously she speaks Japanese and English. My son speaks Japanese and English. And they took a bus where they had to n negotiate with the bus driver. Like he could speak any English. 
took up into the hills looking for this school. There was a school up in the hill, like a really local school. And they, we arrived at this local school and without any appointment, just turned up. And it was like a tiny school, just turned up. They turned up. And without speaking any Spanish, they couldn't speak much English either because they weren't like, a, you know, uh, any, they didn't have any international kids there. And they were trying to communicate and she basically got it across to the, the, the head that I would have put my son in your school. Didn't have any appointment. But they were like, come, come, come. And they'd like, sit in the, the office and drink coffee and talk and like, you know, show pictures of all this sort of stuff. And somehow <laughs> she got Harry, my son, registered in the school and he started a week later. I mean, how that happens is a miracle. But I think it just goes to show, you know, if you, if you want to make things happen, they can happen. So after, so how long do you spend in Lanzarote? Uh, we did uh, just under two years. I did the Ironman, yeah. which was like a really big thing, a big goal. And then after that, we just kind of got a little bit bored of Ireland life. Needed to. It's, it's only like eighty thousand people there, and it, as you say, it's volcanic, so yeah. it's like just barren rock. It's like we're living on the moon. It is. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. a moonscape. Yeah. Have you been there? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, a lot of Brits go on holiday there. Yeah, yeah. it's all right. I mean, it's a really nice, but it's a lovely place, and I love the people. Yeah, the weather's good. Oh yes, yeah. year-round sunshine. Yeah. It's great for. I mean, if you're into cycling or running, it's amazing. Yeah. So okay, so we've done Lanzarote, <laughs> and how long have we got? You've got money. Yeah, you've got money. You can live anywhere you want. So then, what? What do you do? How did you decide you were going to do? What you were going to do next? Well, we moved. We took. It was just completely, I don't know how it started, but we liked living on islands, tropical islands. Um, but we want something a bit more exotic. So, um, and, and Lanzarote, I remember we had an internet connection. We're paying about 100 euros, so about, I don't know, $100 a month for internet. And we were getting like three meg, three megabytes. It was so frustrating. Um, so things like that were getting kind of annoying. So we thought we'd go somewhere was a bit more, a little bit more developed, more people, more choice, you know, because we'd seen like the same cafe, the same restaurant every day for like a year or whatever. It's getting boring. So we thought, we looked around and we did all our research and ending up in Okinawa. As an island. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't know, I mean, I, I don't know if you know where Okinawa uh, is, right? It's in Japan and I think the winters are going to be cold. Well, it, it's in Japan, you're right. Yeah. It's out in the East China Sea, or the South China Sea, sorry. So it's in between Japan and Taiwan. It's actually closer to Taiwan. So if you sort of go all the way down from Japan towards, I don't know, Thailand or Hong Kong direction, you'll eventually hit Taiwan, but before that you get to Okinawa. Um, it's tropical, subtropical, oh. not really cold in winter. Um, gets down to about 15 degrees. Okay. But it has huge, like mega typhoons there. That's in the typhoon part. Yeah, because yeah, it's just really beautiful. And we thought we'd do that. Um, I, I wanted to get Harry into a Japanese school because he, he obviously could speak Japanese, but he couldn't read or write. And, wanted, you know, he was fluent in English. He was like seven, eight, eight at the time. He speaks Spanish as well. Mm. But I wanted him to kind of like pick up on his Japanese as well. Maybe, you know, he'd never lived in Japan. 
So I wanted him to connect with that part of the culture as well. So we went to Okinawa, the home of karate, and amongst other things, and some of the longest living people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So you've done, so how long did you live in Okinawa? Six months. Six months. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, didn't work out. It, was, no, it didn't work out. So did yeah. your son learn Japanese? Yeah, he did. He went to he went to Okinawan school. Yeah, like really local school. Yeah, which was really nice. It was like really familial. You know, nice. It was not like it's bigger than the Spanish one, but they were all like really friendly and um, Okinawan people are really laid back. Um, food's amazing there. I love it. And there's Okinawa soba, which is like uh, I don't even like Japanese ramen or whatever, but it's like more like the tonkotsu, which is like pork ramen with like the heavy soup with like the crinkly noodles and they have a lot of the goya which is the the bitter gourd the green nobly thing yeah which is really high in antioxidants and so on yeah and the amazing sashimi sushi fish is amazing it's just a really nice place some really really stunning beaches as well but six months six months is all we gave it right. we couldn't find a place to live really difficult Two thirds of walking hour is American bases. Hmm. And that just like, you can imagine squeezing all the population into the what's left. It doesn't make a great place to live. It's really beautiful as a tourist. But I think what we were realizing that actually we needed a bit more civilization. So, so, so you, needed more civili yeah. you need more civilization. So we went to mainland Japan. <laughs> <laughs> we're not getting to the point are we but he did ask me and it's a long story Neville <laughs> yeah. so what do you okay expect? so we're, not, we're mainland Japan so why mainland Japan what well because I love Japan obviously my wife loves Japan and wanted to get Harry into school uh, not an not a international school but a Japanese school and um, living in Japan is very very easy very very comfortable um, the food is amazing. Uh, it's kind of cheap to live there, I think, like compared to Singapore. Yeah. I know it used to be a lot more expensive. Everything works very safe. Uh, so we wanted to do that. And we went to, so if you imagine where Tokyo is, and then you go down to Mount Fuji, which is sort of the southwest of Tokyo, we're in between like plumber line down to the coast. We, the place we lived was, uh, if anybody knows, it's called Kugunama Kaigan. We, yeah, I you won't know, but know. maybe our listeners might <laughs> yeah. know. But Kugunama Kaigan, right by Enoshima, where the big Buddha is, Daibutsu, the huge Buddha, the huge bronze Buddha. And uh, it, so you, you picture your place, it's like the surf capital of Japan. So there's a huge surfing community there. Like these these guys who by day a corporate salary room man but four o'clock in the morning they're out surfing waves it's a really bizarre culture like they're all sort of dressed like californian style you know with long hair and the caps and then they get in a suit and go to tokyo and you you had a beach where you could go down and it's it wasn't the, the cleanest beach but it looked really nice and you go down there every surfing out there and honestly you could look to your right and especially in a winter day you see it right there, just Mount Fuji, just staring at you. And you, you're on a beach and you've got these blue skies and you think, wow, this is amazing. So it really was a nice place to live. Yeah, so we did uh, two years there. Yeah. 
And so you have two years, what made you leave? I think it was natural next step, which was bringing us all the way back to Asia Tech Podcast, which is that the more I got into the world of entrepreneurship and startups, the more I sort of got dragged back into it. Because when I was living in Japan, I was still kind of semi-retired. You know, I was sort of dabbling. I'd work 10 hours a week. <laughs> so what were you working on? Um, side projects, like people were asking me to, to help them out, advisor and this, that and the other. And I was kind of like, I was still doing stuff like my own websites, um, trying to put together like courses, which didn't, you know, some flew, some didn't, creating my own videos, just keeping myself busy and creating stuff. Um, then getting into Asia Tech Podcast, like doing that, starting that, building that. Um, was and, that from dabbling in your website and was that sort of a, yeah, an evolution into podcasting or was it just a decision you made to move into podcasting? Well, I was doing it. I had a show before that called Founder FM, hmm. which is like Asia Tech Podcast, but for the world, for startup founders. Because I was just, you know, I, didn't, I never disconnected from that community. I was always fascinated by startup founders and people and their stories and that journey. And so I started doing that, talking to amazing people. And the more and more I did it, the more I got drawn into it. Then it became about Asia because I was doing more and more Asian stuff. Then it became Asia Tech Podcast. And then I realized I really enjoy this. And I was kind of doing more and more work. And I, suddenly I was like work, working full time when it wasn't a job. And then uh, we thought, you know, if we're going to turn, if I'm going to turn this into a business, like I have to go where the action is. And in Japan, there's no startup action. Very, very little. You know, you can't, being an entrepreneur in Japan is not the same as here or anywhere in Asia. Yeah. So I don't want to be surrounded by people who, you know, it goes back to that whole point. Like I left Portsmouth in England because I was surrounded by people who didn't get what I was trying to do. And that was sort of, similar situation in Japan now was surrounded by people who are corporates and salary people. And, you know, if you were a startup, they didn't even know what a startup was. Some people knew, but 99% didn't. Yeah. So I'm constantly having to justify myself and it's tiring. So I wanted to come here. Where's here? Singapore. Singapore. Lion so, City. So how did you make that decision that Singapore was supposed to be the place to be? Uh, well, it wasn't a direct line, so allow me to just embellish. Sorry, allow me to embellish the story. We initially planned to go to Thailand because I was still sort of like in that I can do this and be kind of retired, semi-retired type thing mode, and run the podcast. Um, and they sent my family sent me as the forward scout to Thailand to check it out. So I went to Phuket. We'd already been to Phuket. And we liked it. I thought we can go and live in Phuket and I flew down to Phuket and shortly after a few weeks in on my own looking for places I realized this isn't going to work because it's not it's a really nice place but it's a bit like now it's like really busy you know like traffic 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 and you've got a 12 year old boy you know you don't want them on those roads yeah. right so um and again you know Phuket mafia there's all that stuff going on if you've got a business you want to keep your head down rather than especially my business where you're in the business of promoting yourself and that all goes on in Phuket I didn't want that so um we had the conversation and said you know remember when we last time we flew to Phuket we stopped at Singapore for two days on the way which we did with the family I said what did you think of Singapore and they 
my wife was like, I love it. And my son was like, yeah, I love it. Because at the time, he was really into Uber. Yeah. <laughs> that sold him on Singapore. Not like anything else. But he just liked the idea of Uber because he could get this app and call a car. He loved that. I said, well, what about Singapore? And they're like, okay, what does it mean? And I said, well, I've done my research and I think we could get a work permit. I can get a work permit here if I do this, that and the other. But it's a risk, or it's like a huge risk. I can't do this semi-retired. It's expensive. You know, I need to go in and I need to invest this money and all that kind of thing. So it was like the the do or die moment, which was, and I realized that I was in Thailand. I could spend the next 30, 40 years, we could spend the next 30, 40 years of our lives just kind of living this semi-retired life. Or do we double down and go back and what I'm really passionate about and that is entrepreneurship and start a business properly and starting a business one over living on a paradise island. So to your point about Singapore, that's why I'm here. And I, I don't know. I mean, I often think about it and in the shower in the morning or lying in bed at night, I also think like, was that the right thing to do? Because I could have had it easy. But here, you know, it's, it's, there's a struggle. There's a hustle. Every single day, a hustle. Stressful. But that was by choice. Yeah, so you had a choice of paradise or... Struggle. Struggle. Yeah, give me the struggle every single day. So do you think that's a <laughs> core part of you? Is that something that's in you that if it's, if it's too easy, you're looking for the challenges? Is that... Yeah, is that what I think that's what I've... That's what... I don't know. I mean, we, we talked about this like on the grind when we did that podcast yeah. and we kind of discover a lot about ourselves which you don't realise. And I think, you know, we're hardwired as entrepreneurs a little bit differently. Especially if you've travelled, stepped outside your comfort zone. So, yeah, maybe. I think it's not, it's not masochist. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, th you know, we're more turned on by struggle and overcoming than we are by lying on a beach. I don't forget, don't get me wrong, I love lying on the beach. But, you know, in terms of what makes me happy, and especially, you know, what makes my family happy, is the sense of doing something. So, and I think, I don't know, so, like, we're all sort of searching for happiness, aren't we, in our life? That's sort of our eternal quest, and we're looking around, looking under things for answers, looking, you know, turning over stones for these sort of, philosophical answers and I think it just comes down to um, you know it's not happiness is not a state it's not something you get it's not something you win it's not something you achieve happiness is uh, doing doing yeah, yeah I mean so if playing volleyball makes you happy just set up a life where you can do more of that or if walking makes you happy how do you create a life where you can do more of that or if eating food makes you happy or traveling places it's not like, how do I get to this point? It's like, how do I stay in the game longer doing that? So I guess for me, happiness is just doing what makes me happy. And what makes me happy is just making stuff and challenge. So you're, you said you never left the entrepreneur world behind. So how, does, how did you decide what you were going to do with the entrepreneur world? So you're making podcasts. You've started Asia Tech podcast mm. you're in singapore now why not just have a small podcast um 
that you just trundle along with um, just interview entrepreneurs on a sort of an individual basis? Why not just do that? Because I committed. So, and what does that commitment mean for you? Well, there's financial commitment. Yeah. But I guess it's, uh, you committed, to, you, you're taking a path and in a way you've burnt your bridges as well. There's no going back. So I'm absolutely, I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoy the risk of doing it as well. The fact that it isn't trundling along is, you know, and the fact that it carries a risk and the fact that it does have a cost excites me. Because it really, I don't know, it's like, why it's going back to like an Ironman. Why the fuck would you do such a stupid race? It doesn't make sense. Like, nobody enjoys it, like doing the race. It's painful. It's hard. You get sad. You get, go into all kinds of dark places during the race. And you didn't realize, actually, I'm paying to do this. So, yeah, I think that's the answer. I can't, can't remember what the question was. Well, what I'm trying to get at <laughs> is that... Um, you could have just had a yeah, Asia yeah. Tech podcast as a weekly podcast right, right. that you interviewed entrepreneurs. I mean, similar to what I do, you know, as, on a weekly basis, just interview, edit, upload it, and just keep repeating that. But you've taken on a sort of a leadership role in the podcasting industry, yeah. whereby you're getting other podcasters, you're pulling other podcasters in, to say, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Mm. Um, how can we take this forward in Asia? So why have you, this is what I'm trying to get, why are you doing that? I like a challenge. Yeah. But it reminds me back in the day when I was um, selling youth mobile research, like everybody disbelieved me. And I like that. I like proving motherfuckers wrong. I think it's, I think, you know, a lot of people, and I guess there's, there's a serious point is that, um, and I'm sure you could unpack the psychology in, on a, a deeper episode, put me on the couch. But I think that like m what motivates entrepreneurs, a lot of people talk about the opportunity, changing the world and making the world a better place. And I wonder, there's a whole lot out of there who've just got to prove people wrong, rightly or wrongly, that, you know, it's like, I think great things come out of positions of pain, like whatever happens in your life or what, you know, whatever those kind of layers of personality that were formed when you were a kid. Right. Um, and you think about, you know, anybody who's done anything amazing in art or music, for example, they've had a pretty fucked up childhood, right? They just create, they, they have so much to bring. They have so, you know, the most beautiful voices come from those, positions of pain. I'm not saying I'm like that, but I'm saying that sometimes that can be an amazing motivator that you just feel that this has to be done because those voices are there. You remember those people saying those things to you, right? And that's what you want to prove wrong. You don't want to, I, I'm being honest. I'm not interested in changing the world. If I make the world a better place, that's a bonus, right? But, you know, when you grow up and you know, you're told a certain thing about yourself or people tell you that you have to be like this or that never goes away. That I, I don't know, you know, as a teenager, that's there forever. It's embedded in your soul, right? So it's just like, this is this, 
but turned into something very positive. Because I think that could eat you up as a kid, right? That, those kind of angers that you have when you're a teenager. You're fighting. So but, is, it, is it the business you want to create or is it a podcast business you want to create or is it a media business you want? What, what do you want to create? Where do you want to, where do you see yourself in, where do you see Asia Tech Podcast in 10 years or five years? I want to do, I mean, I came to Singapore and I've told people this before if they heard my story is that, you know, I want to create the MTV of the startup ecosystem. And I love MTV because I grew up with MTV. For me, it represents something. And they, they're also one of my best clients, as I said earlier. Yeah. But that's not, that's no coincidence, right? Um, oh, sorry, it is a coincidence, but maybe it isn't. It's part of the, the whole story, right? And um, for me, they're like, they changed everything and not just for me, but in music as well. Like, you know, if you were a black musician in, in America in the eighties, like you don't stand a fucking chance. Like if you were Michael Jackson, like you didn't get any airplay and it wasn't just Michael Jackson. It was all those sort of hip hop artists that were just getting nothing. You know, if you were like a white country player, then maybe you got some airtime or white rock and roll or whatever. But there was a whole generation of people who didn't get any airtime. They didn't have a voice. They didn't have a channel. But they had amazing music and amazing stories to tell. And MTV came along and it happened at the time of Betamax video and cheap TV and $50 music videos, right? And it just all happened and they just democratized the whole thing and they blew it up. And they just basically said, look, that era is over. Now we're going to give everybody a voice. And obviously at the time, it, you've got to put it in context of where we were at the time. Like now it's nothing, right? It's nothing. Like, it's like now it's YouTube and Spotify. But back then it was MTV. So I want to do that for the startup ecosystem because I, I look around and I think, wow, there's so many amazing stories out there. You know, there's Jack Ma for sure, but who, who else do you know? And... I want to do that for that generation, people who don't have a platform, who aren't getting recognized, who aren't the self-promoters. And I want to hear their stories and build that platform across Asia because it's just amazing. Like, so you, you want to, like, you said they're not the self-promoters, but with MTV, yeah. the... The musicians, the artists, they are self, they want to self promote. Yeah. So, how do you convince um, an entrepreneur that's not a self promoter to self promote? Yeah. To, to, to make, or how would you do that? What would you, what would you suggest to them? Story. Story. And what does that mean? Story. You know, if I'm, I've come to you, I'm an entrepreneur, I appear on your, podcast yeah and what do you what what are you telling me that i need to do well if you're here to reach out to an audience whether it is i mean like on one of our shows it's all about pitching to investors or hiring talent it tell it's telling a story effectively and what you're good at for example is asking the right questions you're setting me up to answer those questions and anybody sitting here in that situation has an opportunity to tell their story, right? 
Um, to do that, I think they've got to start with what is broken. So why does this all make sense? Like, why the hell should I spend an hour listening to this guy? You know, what's he trying to fix? So in terms of storytelling, always start with the problem. What's broken and how are you fixing it? And I think that's a great place to start because they might not be a natural self-promoter. They might not be a slick pitch man or woman, but they know what's broken. So like with, like with Age Tech Podcast, if I was sitting here and you're asking me in that, those contexts, I'd say, well, you know, startup investors, startup founders all want to raise money, all want to hire good people and tell their story, but they don't have a platform to do that nothing they have databases lists events shitty pitch competitions demo days but there's nothing and that's got to change so that's the problem so you're suggesting that um they come on asia tech podcast and tell their story and reach their audience through you well, yeah, there isn't many other alternatives. I mean, yeah, of course, there's events and so on, but I don't think you. I don't want to do the sales pitch, but you're not going to get many opportunities to tell the story in your terms. I mean, like for example, you're sitting here asking me questions in a very uh, supportive way. You're not sort of like you're not doing the journalist angle on me, Graham. In 1993, you said this. How do you justify that? That's no good. That's not yeah. going to get people telling their story. And in the pitch competition, like, you know, we've seen these, pitch, these awful pitch competitions where people stand up and, yeah, and then the high five. And, I, yeah, I almost think they're like beauty competitions. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then I always think, you know, you put like Lergay Lerge and Sari, Sergey and Larry, um, the Google boys on that, how would they do? They'd be awful. Can you imagine they stood up and said, oh, oh, we've got this thing and we're not very good at presenting. It's kind of like a search bar. Oh, what? What's a search bar? Well, we're going to do this to the, the world of information. Can you imagine? That'd be terrible. And people are like, boo, get off. Yeah. Get on the next one. Yeah, the guy didn't know how to find. So I think a lot of startup founders are like that. They're not slick pitch people, especially here in Asia. I want to give them a voice. You know, I want to, let's hear that story. Let's give them a chance. Let's hear it because in this environment, it's a chance to come out. So your, sto your story is the MTV of the entrepreneur entrepreneurship startup start world in Asia. And that's, that's what giving, I, giving them a voice. That's what I want to build. Yeah. Yeah, it's not my story, but yeah. that's a story that yeah. I'm part of. And if we can make it happen, that would be awesome. Is it, you know, the, it's gonna it's a it's a time capsule of our time and all the amazing people in it right those so, human stories so if anyone wants to get on the podcast to tell their story what do they do what do they do well i mean if, if they're a startup raising funds or hiring people go to pitch deck asia pitch deck asia that's the pitch deck show um that's that's a starting point for startups or if they are a podcast host um, Asia Tech Podcast. Okay. So, uh, anything else you want to add? No, I think I've, you've been a really good interviewer, conversationalist, host. So? Yeah, definitely. I enjoyed that. Okay. So, if anyone, you heard the link, 
yeah. uh, Asia Tech podcast. Yeah. I'll probably be, as I say, stealing this one and putting it on my own channel. Yeah, shout out to Asia Biz <laughs> Stories. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, get in touch with Graham. You can also get in touch with you through LinkedIn as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, on LinkedIn. Details in the show notes. Yeah. And Neville, Neville J. McKenzie. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Graham. Thank you. This brings us to the end of this episode of Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now we need you to hit the subscribe button and head over to asiabizstories.com for more great information on how to take your inspiration and turn it into action. Thanks again, and we look forward to having you join us next time on Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action.